The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. All right, I'm joined today by Eric Carter. Is it Landine? Landine. Carter Landine. Mm-hmm. Landine, okay, uh, is the host of True Consequences, and man, I want to get into some of your background and stuff, Eric. But uh, you know, I started listening. I had to, I had to drive up. I had a dentist appointment this morning, and so I listened to the the first episode of season five of True Consequences. And ooh, man, that's you're that is a very well told. You're doing a great job telling the story, and I think you mentioned that you've been through some of this stuff before. I have too. Uh, the whole custody battle, everything that was. Uh, that's a. It's incredibly interesting listening, uh, for, for sure. I was like, oh, wow! I, I remember being in hearings just like this. Thank you. Yeah, it was a tough case to cover, and and my custody battle was pretty pretty drawn out and pretty intense. So I related to mm-hmm. a lot of what was happening there, like you did, uh, and I think it was a great place to start that story for sure. For sure, you know, because you know, and we're gonna in a little bit here. We're gonna talk about the case, the the tragic end of the case. But yeah, I think it was a great choice to like to start. At the beginning of where the conflict, because so many, so many of these domestic violence homicides are alleged, are, well, I guess not alleged, he was convicted, start from something like this, and then they they build out from there. So it's a little teaser. We'll get into that in a minute. But man, I was just as I was, I was, just, I was just sitting in my in my driveway before I came in. I was, I got to go record, but I was still listening, trying to get to the end of the episode before we got in. It's very well put together. Thank you. Uh, and I love, and I love that you use. Voice. I, I wish I had the time to always do that because like you used a lot of like voice actors to go through transcripts, and it's so nice to do that instead of you know, a lot of times on Truth and Justice, I'm just kind of either summarizing or I'm like quoting both sides, but it was just really took you into the moment. Yeah, I felt like it was a good way to break up the narration, and you mm-hmm. know, anytime I had audio or video, I would use you know the actual person speaking telling that that portion of the story but if i did if i only had transcript i think it just made it a lot more sense to have somebody else do it so that it kind of breaks it up a little bit makes it more interesting to listen to yeah it's dude it's well very well put together it's it's awesome and i love the the changing voices all the time that's like that's that's how i want every truth and justice episode to be together but usually when i'm writing the script white knuckled on a thursday <laughs> night so it can go out to edit on friday morning it's like wow it's just going to be me this time <laughs> <laughs> so when you put these together, because I know you mentioned in the first episode of season five that it was you were planning on this just being like a six part miniseries, and you got a FOIA request. It was a huge, do- a huge case file, yeah. Uh, and you've done it more long form. Like, what's your production like? Are you just week by week, or you know, doing it in real time, or do you like pre produce everything and then put it out later? Yeah. Uh, so because Dylan's case was such a huge undertaking. I really had to get organized and I really had to get my stuff together because it was going to be mm-hmm. impossible to tell this story. Uh, I, I could have easily gotten lost in the weeds and, you know, done 25 episodes. Uh, right. But I just decided, you know what, I'm going to buckle down. I'm going to pre-produce all of it. And that put me in a really good position to the point where now I'm about eight episodes ahead on my production. Uh, and I have a bunch recorded that I have to go through and edit and fix up. But 
now I'm now I'm ahead. But before before Dylan, I was like you, you know, like last minute trying to get the script done, trying to get everything yeah. together, and then recording and editing overnight. And uh, I, I prefer this. If I can stay ahead, I'm definitely going to try to. <laughs> Oh yeah, I'm so fucking jealous right now that you're eight episodes ahead. <laughs> now you're able to do it because you still have a day job, right? I have a day job. Um, I have a, I have a team now of people that are helping me produce some of this, mm-hmm. and and that's helped take the load off of it, uh, and made it easier for me to stay ahead. And then when I do family interviews, you know, those kind of just slide in wherever I can fit them in. Nice. So, uh, what do you do for your day job? Uh, I'm basically like a regional manager for an ice cream chain. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, now, do you now? You know, when I was listening to the episode, I hear you know you've got you've got all kinds of sponsorships and stuff going on. Do you do you have any intention of walking away from the ice cream biz and being a, just just podcasting, or are you going to try to keep both going? Yeah, I uh, I'm kind of working on that right now. So uh, this isn't a notice to my boss if he's listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> you heard Eric's about to put in his two week notice. Everybody listen. <laughs> but yeah, that's 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 the plan. I'm hoping that it'll be sometime this year, maybe next year when I can when I can step away and really pour myself into this full time. That's awesome. Yeah, that's you know kind of the same process I went through when I was still still a fireman and doing the podcast and then it kind of got bigger than I thought it would get and then that transition period where finally I was able to say all right, I'm leaving the fire department to do to do this full time. It's a cool cool spot to be in and uh and it, it's all certainly well deserved because you're doing a great job on the podcast. Thank you. How did you get into doing a true crime podcast? Like where did this idea come from? Yeah, so I am actually fighting for justice for my baby brother who was murdered 35 years ago. And I had watched several cases. My brother was a child abuse case. Uh, he was he was abused and then eventually died from from the abuse. And living in New Mexico, I started to see as I grew up more and more cases similar to Jacob's case that were tragic, but also really noticing that the justice system in New Mexico didn't seem to really be doing a great job of holding people accountable for for murdering mm-hmm. children. And I kept saying, somebody needs to say something about this. Somebody needs to do something about this. And eventually I just said, well, I guess I'll say something about it. And at the time I was really starting to get into podcasts again, uh, listening, <clears throat> excuse me, listening to more true crime podcasts. And it just kind of hit me that maybe I could do a true crime podcast. And so I, mm-hmm. I, I tried, I started, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, the first, right. the first few episodes were a little rough. Uh, as I figured out, you know, sound production and those kinds of things. And I'm still learning a lot. But uh, it was really this show was created as a love letter to my brother, you know, to also help other people in my community who are fighting for justice and to give people a voice and give them a platform that they can tell their story and their words without having to worry about being edited for context or any of those kinds of things. And Mm -hmm. it's turned into a really beautiful way to honor my brother and also help people in my community. That's awesome. Because do you do you focus all on New Mexico cases? Mostly New Mexico. Yeah. Dylan Redwine is Durango, which is Four Corners right there uh, on the right. border of New Mexico. I try to stay in the desert southwest as much as possible uh, just because I feel like I can make a bigger impact if I focus, you know, on this community. Yeah. And there's and there's no shortage of instances like this anywhere you go. So it's pretty you know, it's it's reasonable to, to to take a small geographic area and focus on that. Yeah, and the amount of cases here. I mean, I'm I'm never going to run out of content, unfortunately. Right. So with your with your brother, so it was. You know, I I had done a little bit of research before this. Your brother was was Jacob, and he was killed in 1986 at six years old. That case was never 
it was never prosecuted, considered closed by law enforcement. Did they did, did they like rule it and like how like how was nothing done? It sounds like it's pretty at least in your mind pretty clear what happened there. Yeah, just a quick correction. So I was six years old. He was nine months old. He was he was a baby. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, it it's an interesting interesting is the wrong word, but it, it's it's a strange kind of way that everything unfolded. The person responsible was my mom's boyfriend at the time, and he mm-hmm. confessed. Uh, but we have no confession. We have no tape recording. We have no notes on the confession. All we have is a little asterisk on the case file that says, uh, we don't need to conduct a polygraph because the suspect confessed. That's all it says. So we don't know what he said. We don't know what conditions that confession was given under. And his story changed about six or seven times throughout the investigation. And all of that is documented. When uh, my mom eventually was finally able to get away from him because he was very abusive to all of us. She went to the DA and asked him to press charges against him for child abuse and and for Jacob's murder. And the DA said, no, we're not going to do that because you gave him an alibi. And what he's referring to in that comment is when my mom was asked if she thought her boyfriend was capable of killing her son, she said, I don't think so. This was immediately after he died. And she didn't. She didn't think so because at that point he hadn't been abusive to her. And a bunch of other stuff happened. You know, he did take a polygraph. He did fail it. Uh, in New Mexico, polygraphs can still be admissible in court. So it oh, means... Oh, really? Yeah. It means a little bit of something, but not a lot. I guess the, the thing for my mom was she really believed that he, he it was an accident because after he failed the polygraph, he walked out of the state police office and went home and nothing ever happened. And so she believed that clearly he would have passed if he was able to just walk out, right? right. And yeah. so so she stayed with him because she was like, okay, that answers my question. It was an accident. And then he became physically abusive with her. And after a couple of years of that, she's like, no, I do believe he's capable now. I've seen what he's capable of. Um, this is somebody that she knew her whole life. It, our families are very close. His sister married her brother. So we we've known each other. We've known this family for a long time. We never thought he was capable of this. That is, oh, wow. So not only did he fail the polygraph, which is admissible in New Mexico, but he also apparently confessed. Mm-hmm. And they and the and the prosecutor's reasoning for not filing charges was because you're and he called it an alibi that she just said, "I don't think he's capable of this." Yeah. If that was the case, every case I've ever worked would be thrown out. Exactly. You know, there's always somebody that says, "I don't think that he's capable of this." Like what, what, what do you think the reasoning is why they never press charges? I have suspicions. There's a, I mean, I can't really definitively say it's because of this or because of that, but my suspicions, uh, I think are, are founded in some fact. Uh, and one of those facts is that he played basketball with the police department every week. They were friends. Uh They hung out. He worked for the County. He knew everybody in the County had keys to every office in the County and it's a small community. There's only about 6,000 people that live there. His dad was a minister, upstanding member of the of the community. And I just feel like they were negligent in a lot of ways. I don't want to say it's a conspiracy uh, because I don't feel like I can actually say that without having some proof behind it, but it is suspicious. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it seems very suspicious that 
I mean, I mean what? I guess I don't know the detail. Did you cover his case on your? I started your podcast on season five. Did you cover your brother's case? Yeah, um, I did about three episodes. I'm actually thinking about doing a deep dive into the case uh, in the near future. But I did three episodes. One episode's an interview with my mom, and that was the uh-huh. first first time we ever talked about the case together. So that's a pretty intense uh, episode. And I also talked to a former. I can imagine. Yeah, it was intense. I also talked to a former prosecutor from the state of New Mexico to get kind of her perspective on why it didn't get prosecuted. Now what we're facing really is is time, right? It's been a long time since all of this mm-hmm. has happened. Evidence availability is probably pretty small. Um, but through the advocacy work, I was able to get the case reopened by the attorney general. So that's pretty oh, cool. Great. Yeah. yeah that's a, well, now, is it like, was it like a shaken baby situation? Is there like... A- yeah, he uh, he literally beat Jacob in the head until he died. Oh my god, I'm so sorry that that happened to begin with. And it and it, yeah, I was I was thinking in my mind if it's like shaken baby, those those cases get really complex because it's hard to prove if it was intentional or if that's what happened. But so this was just blunt force trauma. He confessed, failed a polygraph, and they didn't press charges. Yeah, and unfortunately, Jacob had a previous injury, a previous brain injury. Um, that resulted in brain fluid having to be drained from his skull. And there's really no way to know whether it was the initial injury that resulted in his death or if it was the secondary injury a couple weeks later. So that's kind of what prosecutors have been telling me is going to be the challenge in proving you know, what actually caused Jacob's death. It's hard to know. So when you when you started the podcast, did you intend on going into all these cases or did it start off where you wanted to just kind of tell your brother's story or did you know like this was going to be a long-term deal for you? I actually did not want to tell Jacob's story. It was not something that I wanted to do. It's such a traumatic event in my family's history that still has a really powerful effect on my family. So it was not something I wanted to do. And I also am just a very private guy. I don't like having all my life out there. Right. But I was talking to a mom whose son was brutally murdered. And I said something along the lines of, if you ignore these problems and you're not willing to talk about them, then you're just allowing them to continue. And I kind of felt like I punched myself in the gut with that because I was so unwilling to talk about Jacob's story. But here I am, like asking this mom to relive the worst day of her life and then also saying to my listeners that like you have to do something about this. So as I reflected on that and reflected on my kind of hypocrisy in that moment, I decided that I was going to tell Jacob's story because I felt like it was it was important, but it also illustrates a lot of the issues with New Mexico justice related to child abuse. And, and for me, it's like a signpost kind of in that journey through the state and through all these cases. And so after I, t- after I told the story, and I did get some inspiration from people like Sarah Turney, who is just out there constantly fighting for not just right. her sister, but for others, it inspired me to to open up and to tell that story. And I'm glad I did. I always just wanted to help other people. But, you know, through this, I was able to actually help my family and help my brother's case as well. So it was it was worth it. That's great. Can you give us kind of a breakdown of, so season five is the one you're on now, which is the uh, the Dylan Redwine case. Mm-hmm. Um, what were the the first four seasons? They were all, actually, this was the first deep dive. So Dylan was the first really deep dive that I've done. I've done, you know, one or two, maybe three episode uh, miniseries, but it was all very episodic. You know, a lot of it's family Mm -hmm. interviews. A lot of it is 
focused on justice in New Mexico. Either, you know, I'm advocating for somebody who is seeking justice or I'm trying to tell a story of why our justice system is the way it is and using those cases mm-hmm. to illustrate it. So um, all the previous seasons are kind of all over the place. There's a good mix of, of different types of cases and different stories. Um, and in the beginning, I even did like an alien uh, sighting because uh-huh. <laughs> I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with the show. Um, yeah. So it's kind of all over the board. The first season is definitely all over the board, but it, it starts to find its voice after season two. So in, in season five, it's a serialized, long-form, deep-dive investigative series mm-hmm. um, that you'd put a ton of work into. Where do, you, do you foresee, like, you know, for season six, are you going to go back to the more episodic format? Or are you, are you, do you think this is kind of a shift in how True Consequences is going to be produced? So I'm doing a little bit of a hybrid and I'm actually not doing seasons anymore. So now that I'm ahead, I'm just going to release weekly. Okay. Which feels really good to be able to do that because, you know, after white knuckling a season, I needed a break <laughs> to, right, to, right. to get my stuff together. Uh, but now it's going to be a mix of episodic and a mix of, of deep dive. So actually, I just released a three-part series on the women of Wattis, uh-huh. the hundreds of thousands of women that have gone missing and murdered on the border. A lot of them are from New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And so, but I also have some episodic stuff kind of sprinkled in, in between those. So it's going to be a little bit of both. Nice. And, and listeners should know when you go on, you don't have your set up. Like when you go into iTunes, it doesn't list them a breakdown by season. You, so oh. you just got to kind of look through the titles. Oh, it doesn't? No. Uh, it may be, maybe that's something you need to change in your, uh, in your yeah, because I, I was like looking for season five, and I, but I just knew it was about Dylan Redwine's case, so I just went to the first episode about him. But yeah, it didn't list, at least on iTunes, it didn't list like okay. the different seasons and episode numbers. I have it set up like that on my host, so I'm guessing it's not transferring over to iTunes, so I'll see how I can fix that to make it easier for people. Yeah, so maybe by the time you hear this, listeners, it will be broke down by, by season. Who's your host? Are you on Art19? Spreaker. On Spreaker, okay, mm-hmm. not familiar with them at all. Um, and and so now that you're you're releasing weekly, what day of the week are the episodes coming out? Sunday, every Sunday, every Sunday. All right. Uh, the last thing I want to do before we get into the case, I want to make sure we have plenty of time to talk because this is a pretty in depth case that we want to talk about. So so you went into this. I'm assuming they didn't at the ice cream business. They didn't teach you how to record and edit and write. Just, did you have any formal training in that, or did you just you know watch some YouTube videos and wing it? Well, I I have done writing in the past and I've done a lot of research. I, you know, I went to grad school, so that qualifies me for research and writing, I think, a little bit. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> uh, but, th- but the production part of it, I had to actually learn myself a lot of it by trial and error and um, more error than, than trial, I think. But I'm getting there and uh, it, it's still a process. I'm still learning a lot. I feel like I've kind of got a pretty good handle on it now. I feel like my audio quality has gotten a lot better, uh, but it's still something that I'm constantly trying to improve. Awesome. Well, the, the episodes I listened to today sounded great, but let, let's get into this, the season five case. So the, the, the murder of Dylan Redwine is the, t- the subject of season five. Like you said, your first deep dive it takes place in, in Durango, California, or Colorado. Um, now, I, Erica, I'd put it here in my notes, La Durango. Is that different? So I, I used to live in Colorado. I remember Durango. Is La Durango and Durango the same place? Uh, it's La Plata County, I think, is probably where that crossover happened. So it's oh, La Plata County another, in Durango, Colorado. It's Durango. Another yeah. classic Erica mistake. Jeez, I don't even know how I can get through. <laughs> She's such a terrible job. 
<laughs> she sits silently on the Zoom. Uh, so La Plata County in, in Durango, which like you said, is down uh, in the southwest corner, down in mm-hmm. kind of the, the Four Corners area. So t- so the, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what I heard in the first episode and then kind of tell me about you know where this case ends up. But as we mentioned at the, at the beginning of the episode here, it was I think a lot of us have been through the, you know, I, I went through a divorce in – Gosh, it was a 2011, and there was a big, uh, you know, it was it was one of those deals where we were pretty easily okay, you know, we were broke anyway, so it was, it was like, you know, this is pretty easy to split up property and how everything's going to go. But then there was this custody battle where I wanted equal parenting time with my kids, and and my ex wanted to have me have the every other weekend thing, and we, and as a matter of fact, so I have a I have a pretty uh, interesting past. So I actually married my ex wife twice. Um, so I went through, <laughs> I went through this twice. <laughs> I learned my lesson the second time. We're good friends <laughs> now, but it was a, didn't make a good married couple. But, um, but I, not only did I go through in that second time that this whole custody battle process, but the first time she, I met her in Colorado, interestingly enough, and that's where she's from. We moved here to Michigan and after we got divorced and we had our custody arrangement all set up, then she filed a motion to move to Colorado with my kid, I only had one at the time. Um, with my son, and I, and that was a year long battle fighting that in court. And it was like as I was listening to the transcripts and the recreations of this hearing, I was like, "Oh my god!" I went through every bit of this. But then, as I'm listening to it, I'm like, "This guy's a deadbeat dad, piece of shit." Like he's the reason I had to have this fight is because of assholes like him. That uh, and I have other people that are close to me that went through similar situations with similar type dads. Um, you know that you know basically he fought for equal parenting time, split custody, week on week off, and then never actually saw his kid, never took his kid, and blames the the ex wife for any problems, even though he's not contributing or helping. Thought it was interesting that she's paying child support to him, yet she's the one that has the kid all the time. Um, it, it, it's, it's an insane. So, so you start off where there's like this conflict way back when they're fighting, fighting for custody. And we learn all these things about what kind of parent he is. And it was, and honestly, like I said, it was like, it was, I can't stand the word triggering because it's over, it's overused. And it wasn't that for me, but it was just like, oh my God, like I can name three dads that I know that are that guy. Yeah. Yeah. That went, that went through divorces and are exactly that guy. It's so classic how, well, oh, well, yeah, yeah, I fought for custody, but I couldn't, you know, it's, I, I couldn't call the school and get the records. I just asked her for the records and she didn't give them to me. And so how was I supposed to know? And then you're like, well, you know, you could call the school. Well, I, well, no, that's on, that's her fault. Everything's, everything is her fault. So we start there in this custody battle, and I don't even know where things go from here, other than the notes I have on it from from Erica. So where does where does the case go from there? So, so prior to this hearing, it's important to talk about a a trip that kind of kept coming up in that case uh, in the in the court hearing, which was the trip that Dylan and Corey took with Mark to go visit baseball stadiums and NASCAR tracks, and it was a long road trip. Real, real quick, because I, I, I think I missed this while I was driving. Is Corey another, another kid? Is it, is it Dylan's brother? Dylan's older brother. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. And Dylan was thirteen at the time. Um, I think during this trip, I think he was um either eleven or twelve. 
He, he's, okay. he was 12 probably. And he, so Mark is asleep. They have a suite. Mark is asleep in one of the rooms. The boys are in the other room. And Dylan's on the computer playing games on Mark's laptop. And he starts kind of going through the computer and he finds these pictures of Mark. And Mark is wearing a diaper. He's wearing women's clothing. He's wearing makeup. He's eating uh, feces out of the diaper on these pictures. And of course, Dylan freaked out. He brought his mm-hmm. he brought his brother over and he's like, check these out. They start talking about it. And then they didn't really confront Mark at the time about this because it was just so shocking. I mean, Dylan's 11 years mm-hmm. old. He has no context for any of this. And right. on top of it, it's his dad. So it really changed the dynamic uh, in his relationship with his father. And so what you see in the hearing is that Dylan really doesn't want to be with his dad. He, Because of this incident, he he's doing everything he can to avoid spending time with his dad. He wants to be with his mom. He feels safer with her. Um, who could blame him for that after mm-hmm. finding something like that? And so after the trial, Mark is angry. He uh, He's really upset about it. We find out later that later on after this trip, Dylan and, and Corey are texting and Dylan's asking Corey to send these pictures to his phone. And Corey asks him, why? Why do you want me to send these photos to you? Because Corey did take a picture with his cell phone when they had those uh-huh. pictures on the screen. So they all, everybody knows about it. Dylan tells Corey that, he says, Papa has been saying that you and mom are really bad influences on my life and I want to show him the kind of man that he is. And I think that's- This is re- Dylan that wants the pictures for this that. This is Dylan, yeah. And so mm-hmm. I think it's it's important to notice that because Dylan was not a kid who was just going to quietly let his dad talk smack about his family. He wasn't going to quietly allow that to happen. And he was still holding on to this shock and anger related to finding his father in these compromising photos. And so what happens during that trial is that Dylan is ordered to go see his dad for Thanksgiving in uh, 2012, which was a couple months after the trial. He has told everybody in his family that he doesn't want to go. He's talked about it Mm -hmm. to all of his friends. He told his mom's lawyer that he didn't want to go. And it was so, he was so persistent that his mom actually called her lawyer to see if there was anything that they could do to prevent Dylan from going on this trip. And the lawyer's response was, this is a court order. You know, if we want to change this, we have to go back to court. And so Mm -hmm. we can file something, but it's not going to be something that we can do in time for him to not go on this trip. So Dylan on the, I believe it is the 18th of November, 2012. I might be wrong on that, but I I believe it's the 18th. He gets on a plane. He goes to Durango. His dad picks him up. The whole time he's texting with his friend, Ryan Nava. He's trying to set up plans to go spend the night with Ryan. and, Mm -hmm. And he's trying to make that for that evening. So he's not even in Durango yet. And he's already planning to leave his dad's house. Right. His dad tells him that he can't go. So him and Ryan make plans to meet up at six in the morning, which is the earliest that Ryan is willing to have him come over to his house. Uh And so for me, that says that he's really doing everything he can to get out of the situation. Right. And he goes to bed. He stops texting at about 930 that night on the 18th. And that's really the last time that he's ever heard from again. He disappears and nobody knows where he is. 
Mm-hmm. He doesn't show up at Ryan's house. You know, Mark, eventually the next afternoon on the 19th, probably about four o'clock, tells Elaine that he can't find Dylan and that he went to the uh, Bayfield, Colorado Marshal's office to tell them. Elaine, of course, is, is Dylan's mom. She panics and calls the Marshal's office. The Marshal's office said they haven't heard from anybody and that there is no missing persons mm-hmm. report filed for Dylan. And so Elaine actually files that at about 5.30 p.m., on the 19th. Okay. Elaine's living in Colorado Springs with her fiance at the time, Mike Hall. Her son, Corey, is also in that area. And they all get in a car and they drive down to Durango, which is about a six-hour drive from there. Mm-hmm. Um, they get there. They start searching for Dylan. Uh, it's the middle of the night. It's dark. Mark Redwine goes into his house, turns off all the lights, and goes to sleep at about 11 p.m. And didn't he, he claim to police that... that- he tried to wake Mark or wake uh, Dylan up in the morning and he wouldn't wake up. So he just left the house. Mm-hmm. And when he came back, he was gone. He was gone. Yeah. 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 And, and none of that actually lines up with the evidence, you know, or with the timeline. It, anything that he says is, is kind of, in my opinion, it's really just him trying to deflect attention away from himself and trying mm-hmm. to make himself seem like he's not involved at all. Right. So this goes on for a long time. You know, Dylan's remains aren't found until I believe like six or seven months later when the snow melts. His remains mm-hmm. are found on a mountaintop. It's about five miles away from Mark's house. Um, mm-hmm. It's called Middle Mountain Road. And there's a lot of people that have, you know, different things to say about Mark and his behavior. Uh, just some highlights on that. He, he never attended a single vigil, a memorial service. He never attended any of those candlelight vigils. He attended one search. Uh, out of all the multiple searches that the community did for Dylan, he he mm-hmm. attended one. So his wow. his behavior as a father is just very suspicious from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then they found all, all the some remains, but then it was later they found his skull in like a different location, right? Yeah. So his skull was found. Um, I'm not sure exactly how far away from the original remains site, uh, but it was it was further away. I would say is over a mile away. Um, and, and I think it's believed that there was some animal predation that involved the skull being moved or possibly mm-hmm. Mark could have moved some of the remains to try to make it seem like there was some animal predation. Right. And so th- this, this all occurred in November of 2012 um, was when he went missing. And then it was what the next year... Mm-hmm. Um, and, and now I want to go find this episode and watch it, but Mark and Elaine went on the Dr. Phil show to talk about it. Uh, I assume you've watched that, that show. All, all I, all I know about it is that Dr. Phil tried to get him to take a polygraph on the show and he refused to do it. Yeah. He had agreed to do it initially when they invited him to the show. And then when it came time to do it, he refused to do it. And then, you know, Dr. Phil was Dr. Phil yelling in his face and, all the, right. all the stuff that he does. Um, yeah. It was pretty dramatic and pretty sensational, but I think that it really does show in a real way how Mark was behaving through this time and how the family was just begging him to be honest and to, to tell them what happened because he was the last person to see Dylan alive. You know, mm-hmm. Dylan's phone never left Mark's house. Oh, never left? Mm-mm. Oh, Wow. And so what, so he ends up being labeled a person of interest because they said there was the, the skull showed signs of blunt force trauma. Mm-hmm. He's labeled as a person of interest in 2015. So then three years later, and then two years after that, 
he was a he was finally arrested and charged with second degree murder and child abuse, resulting in death. What what was the what finally prompted? Was there new evidence that came out, or what what caused them to finally be arrested? Well, I think there was a lot of evidence that they had against him. You know, there was blood found in the house. There was blood found in his truck. The DNA testing was a little bit. There there wasn't a big enough sample to really tell if it was actually Dylan. Mm-hmm. It could have been Corey's blood. It could have been his brother's blood is basically where they were at. But it seemed very unlikely. You know, the amount of blood that they mm-hmm. found and the fact that Corey was still alive and he had no injuries at the time, it, it, didn't, right. it didn't really make sense. Um, I think it was a lot of the investigation where the police were trying to rule out everybody. And it, and you'll listen on on my season about Dylan, you know, to all of these interviews with Mark and where they're coming back to him constantly. Like, it always comes back to you, Mark. It always comes back to you. And and you hear that mm-hmm. over and over again. E- eventually, it becomes very clear to investigators, and you can hear the tone change in their questioning, where they're like, we know it's you. You know, mm-hmm. you're going to decide if it's going to be like this long, drawn-out court battle, or if we're just going to, you know, if you're going to admit to it. He never would admit to it. Uh, they tried everything to get him to admit to it. They tried appealing to his sens- sensibilities as a father. They tried, you know, appealing to his ego. They tried everything that they could to get him to admit, you know, and they were even saying like, we know it was an accident. We know you just got mad and probably lost your temper and, you know, things got out of hand and you didn't mean to kill Dylan. They tried that. None of it worked. He failed his polygraph. I don't know that there was any specific smoking gun that led prosecutors to finally file charges. I think they just finally were like, this is the only thing it could have been. We need to try to take this to trial. And they did. Yeah. They eventually, nine years after his murder, they took him to trial last year in 2021. At this, at that point, Mark's 60 years old and uh, he was found guilty mm-hmm. of the second degree murder. Was he found guilty of both second degree murder and the child abuse resulting in death? Both charges. Yeah. Gotcha. And he was sentenced to 48 years in prison. So, that that takes him up till when he's 108 years old. It's the maximum sentence that they could have given him for both of those charges. Right. Um so th- so the, the story that that is just a very quick brief breakdown of the case in season 5. It uh I'm hooked after after episode 1, so I'll be I'll be listening to all of it. You can get all those details about about uh Dylan's case and several others. His name is Eric Carter Landine. The podcast is called True Consequences. Uh, check it out. Could be your next big true crime binge. Uh, definitely check out season five. It is it is, it is, is very, very well done uh, from what I've heard so far. And Eric, thanks so much for joining me today, buddy. I appreciate it. Thanks, Bob. Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. 
and make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening, and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.